0: I want to uh, introduce you to our um, preacher this morning. Tim Miller is joining us from the Brookside campus. He's been here before, and we're really um, fortunate and blessed to have him with us to open God's word. All right, John fifteen eighteen through 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning.
1: It's good to be with you again. My wife and I uh, are very fond of the Olathe campus, and of course, we're happy uh, to be at Brookside as well, but we miss you all. We miss being here, and so it's always good uh, to be back for a visit. Well, my oldest daughter, Addison was born in April of 2015 and 22 months later, in March of 2017, we had twins, three daughters in 22 months. The three kids in less than two years club is small and we're proud, I guess is the word. I don't know, I'm generally good with words, but I don't know what the word is to describe what we are for being in that club. We've survived at least until now. But my wife and I, in many ways, are a walking cliche. Uh, Four months after the twins were born, we did what all 32-year-olds with three young children do. We both quit our jobs. Uh, We sold our condo in Chicago, and we moved into an apartment on the campus at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School so that I could go back to school full-time to get a degree that no one has ever heard of. It was, among other things, a little bit of a financial risk. Good news, it worked out. I'm a high school Bible teacher now. In order to get by while we were uh, at school uh, and while my wife was home with the three babies, I needed to get a job. So I got a job at Costco. And uh, it wound up being a really great job. I started in the electronics department, major sales is what they call it, and so I sold televisions and everything else that they sell there uh, for a Christmas season, basically for a few months uh, after I got hired, and then I wound up transferring to the optical department in my Costco and in most Costco's, the TVs are close to the optical department. I had become friends with the manager. So after a few months, I transferred to that department and I worked there for almost two years. And it wound up being a really great job. I I really loved working at Costco and I loved working in the optical department. There were six of us in that department and we got along really, really well. Uh, I had one of the best managers I've ever had in any job when I worked in that department, and every quarter, my department at the Costco that, that uh, I was in was in competition to be one of the best optical departments in the company in terms of sales and benchmarks and these sorts of things, and so the competition aspect of it was fun. We just really got along well. We enjoyed one another. Everybody was competent. It was a great little season in my life where I got to do a weird thing, but that job was only temporary, and as I was finishing up my degree... I started applying for teaching jobs all over the country, literally from California to the Carolinas, and I went through a vetting and interview process with a handful of schools, and in March of 2019, it started to become clear that God was leading us to come to Kansas City. So, I accepted the job that I was offered at Kansas City Christian School, and it came time for me to tell uh, my colleagues and friends and managers at Costco that I was going to be moving on. Uh, we were excited but also nervous. My wife and I had lived our entire lives in Chicago. Our family was all there. The first time I was ever in Kansas City, my wife or I was in Kansas City, was when we visited the school for sort of like a final interview. And so we were going to move here with three young kids, no family, no friends, no uh, experience here. And it was my time to sort of share this news with my colleagues at Costco. Now, in order for you to appreciate this story and what was going on in my mind, I kind of have to invite you into the bizarre things that happened in my mind. Do any of you ever, like, interpret reality through scenes and lines in movies? You're in a situation and, like, the first thing that comes to your mind, okay, good, I'm not the only one. Um, Well, during this season of my life, one of those scenes was in my mind. It's from the original Top Gun. Now, How many, Any of you just from seeing this image know what line I'm talking about? You're going to do what? Yeah, I knew somebody would come up with that, right? Okay. Uh, It's going to be difficult for me to get through this. As I was typing this out and realized that I'm going to try to sincerely summarize the plot of Top Gun during a sermon, I thought it's not possible that I can do that without laughing, but I'm going to do my best, okay? This is uh, Merlin, and in this movie, Maverick and Iceman are in a dogfight with six Migs. I just said that from a pulpit. (laughs) Congratulations, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, Maverick is covering Iceman as his wingman, and despite the fact that he seems to have a MiG maneuvering behind him for a shot, Maverick refuses to leave his position. As a result, this MiG is pulling in behind him, and his Rio in the back seat, Merlin, is concerned. He notices that Maverick is slowing down, and he says, what are you doing, Mav? You're slowing down, you're slowing down. And Maverick says to him, I'm bringing him in closer. And then, and this is my very best Tim Robbins impression, Tim Robbins, Merlin says, you're going to do what? (laughs) Thank you, yeah, I'm going to do that again later. (laughs) Now, I mean no offense to you or to Olathe, Kansas, but when I told my friends and colleagues in Chicago that I was leaving Chicago to move to Olathe, Kansas, you know what they said to me? You're going to do what? Yeah, I'm going to move to Olathe, Kansas. Why? Well, do you have family there or something? No, no family. I'm, I'm going to teach high school Bible there. You're going to do what? After I told my direct manager, I started telling my coworkers in the department, and when I told them, do you know what they said to me? You're going to do what? After I told them, I told some of the other managers and some of the people I'd gotten to know while I was there, And do you know what they said to me? You're going to do what? I thought about Tim Robbins' face more during my last month at Costco than I ever thought that I would. Now, I like to think that I've got relatively thick skin, and people were kind enough. I mean, this wasn't a big deal. This is sort of meant to be a lighthearted story. And I guess I didn't know what I was expecting when I told people. But after I told the first few people at Costco what I was doing, I sort of lost my energy for sharing the news. My Costco friends were puzzled by the way I had decided to live my life, and their faces upon hearing my news did not keep those feelings a secret. When we follow Christ, the things we say and the things we do don't always make sense to the wider world. Why would you move from Chicago to Kansas to take a low-paying job teaching high school kids about an irrelevant book? Who does that? John 15, 4 and 5 is probably my favorite passage in all of Scripture. Missed it by one week. There, in John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus sums up Christianity pretty well for me. In my background, people talked a lot about how to become a Christian But at least in my experience, they didn't talk much about how to live and why you should live that way once you became a Christian. And I think Jesus in John 15, 4 and 5 makes it simple. Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you remain connected to me like a branch remains connected to the vine, you will bear fruit. Not you may bear fruit or you might bear fruit, you will bear fruit. And the alternative, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if what Jesus says in John 15, 4 and 5 is right, why would anybody do anything apart from Him? I think Jesus answers that question in our passage this morning. And if I was to summarize what Jesus says in the second part of John 15, it's this. Jesus yields fruit and fruit yields fruit friction. Jesus yields fruit, and fruit yields friction. If you've not done so already, please uh, open your Bible or your apps to John chapter 15. Uh, if you're here this morning you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats around you, you are welcome to use that Bible and take it with you as a gift from Christ's community. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, we're just going to look at verses 18 and 19 to begin. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If Jesus is right, in John 15, 4 and 5, then why would anybody not abide in Jesus? Because... Jesus says flatly here, the world hates people who abide in Jesus. Sometimes Jesus is pretty frank. Look back at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. little silver lining here at the end of verse 20. If they kept my word, they will also persecute keep yours. The headline here is that we should expect persecution. We should expect persecution. In my view, and now this is just one of my life hypotheses, so take it and consider it for what it's worth, one of the main sources, not the only source, but one of the main sources of disappointment, frustration, Depression, anger in life is unmet expectations. We all carry expectations with us into various circumstances, relationships, arenas. Those expectations are often subconscious and they're not always rational. And when life doesn't go the way we expect it to go, we find ourselves getting frustrated, angry, depressed. If you go off to college and your roommate isn't what you expected or college isn't what you expected, that is generally, generally a negative experience. If you get your first job and the job itself or the culture in the workplace is not what you expected, that is generally, generally a negative experience. If you think that marriage is going to go one way and you get married and you find out that it goes another, that is generally. A negative experience. If you think that it's going to take you 40 minutes to get to the airport and it actually takes you an hour and 20, that is generally a negative experience. Is the unexpected always bad? No, certainly not. There are times when the unexpected is good. There are good unexpected things, but a part of what makes bad things bad things is often that they are unexpected. Is the unexpected the only source of stress and frustration in life? No, certainly not. Does changing your expectations change all of this? No, certainly not. Expecting something bad doesn't magically make that bad thing a good thing. Expecting traffic on the way to the airport doesn't eliminate the stress of traffic, but it does, I think, lower it. I think this is important and potentially really, really powerful. Becoming a person who expects the predictable can substantially lower the frustration and stress in your life. Becoming a person who expects the predictable can substantially lower the frustration and stress in your life. And I think one of the many great gifts that God gives us in His Word is a good set of expectations. He tells us a lot about what we can and should expect people to be like. He tells us what we can and should expect life to be like. He tells us what we can expect our own nature to be like. He even tells us what we can expect Him to be like. And please follow the logic here. Expecting the predictable is a good way to live a better life. And on account of God's Word, we Christians should be people who are relatively good at expecting the predictable we get god's insight he gives us his perspective i see plenty of philippians 4:13 t-shirts and bumper stickers and eye patches and magnets and that's fine there's nothing wrong with any of that but i don't see a whole lot of bumper stickers about the reason why we need god to give us strength when was the last time you saw a 2 timothy 3:12 t-shirt all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says, The world hates you, and if they persecuted me, and people certainly persecuted Jesus, then they will persecute you. The first thing we have to do in order to take Jesus' words seriously here is to simply believe them and set your expectation. You will be hated if you abide in Christ. You will be persecuted. Now, all that said, I think at this point it's important to kind of define our terms and get a little bit of perspective. So, if we are going to define persecution, what should we expect? Persecution is pressure to turn aside, persecution is pressure. To turn aside. Now that's my definition. Don't look it up. That's probably not what the internet says. This is my definition. I think that's what Jesus has in mind here it's pressure to turn aside from the way of Jesus. And so defined, persecution exists in various types and in degrees of severity. I think we are fortunate that we do not face the species of persecution that Jesus did. Think about the sort of persecution, the species of persecution that Jesus would have had in mind when he said these words. Prior to John 15, another John, a different John, not the one who wrote this book, John the Baptist, had been beheaded. Likely within hours of sharing these words with his disciples, Jesus was betrayed and arrested. The next day he was brutally beaten, mocked, and publicly executed. Acts chapter 7 tells us the story of Stephen being stoned to death, and the rest of the book of Acts describes a surging level of religious and political persecution of the early church. Paul describes his own persecution in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There he says that he was frequently imprisoned and received countless beatings. Five times Paul received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he survived being stoned. And outside of Scripture, there are various accounts of the ultimate fate of the apostles, nearly all of whom uh, were martyred, whether they were crucified, beheaded, or boiled in oil. That species of persecution isn't unique to the early church. Even in the world today, according to Open Doors World Watch, which is an organization that tracks persecution of Christians throughout the world, they've done so for the past 31 years. In North Korea, now several dozen believers from underground churches have been discovered and executed, while more than a hundred of their family members have been rounded up and sent to labor camps. In Somalia, Converts from Islam to Christianity are regarded, regarded as a high-value target and have been killed on the spot by militia members when discovered. In Yemen, it's illegal to convert to Christianity, and those who do so are at risk of being killed. In Nigeria, militants abduct Christians and have murdered and physically injured many. Others are merely dispossessed from their land. In Afghanistan, which was one of the fastest-growing Christian communities in the world prior to the Taliban's takeover in 2021. Not the largest, but one of the fastest-growing. Most Christians have been forced even further underground than they were before that time or have had to flee the country entirely. The list goes on and on. Now, persecution is not a competition. And just because persecution is different and worse elsewhere, doesn't mean it's not real here and now in the U.S. But perspective is important, I think. We have a tendency, for whatever reason, not just as it relates to this issue, we have a tendency to evaluate our lives and our standing relative to those who we perceive to have it better than us. And generally speaking, again, I'm speaking in general here, I think Christians in America have a tendency to evaluate our current cultural status based on the perception, real or not, that the heyday of Christianity in America has passed us by. But from a different perspective, both historically and in the world today, we have a lot to be thankful for. Both of those things can be true. The persecution that we face is persecution, but it could be far worse. So, what sort of persecution do we face? I can't possibly know your own experience. I won't pretend to. I won't try to. But I think that the species of persecution we face is what I'll call the Merlin variety. Whether spoken or not, when we live our lives in in the way of Christ, our world says in response, you're going to do what? In romantic relationships, if you say that you're going to wait to be intimate or to cohabit until you're married, and those examples just barely, barely scratch the surface in terms of the contrast between biblical values and cultural values in romantic relationships, the world around you is going to say, you're going to do what? When it comes to raising your children When you take a countercultural approach to the way your kids use their phones or consume media, or when you prioritize involvement in your church community over another practice, the world around you is going to say, You're going to do what? In the workplace. And this is vital, vital, because we spend so much time at work. And this species of persecution, I think, is particularly acute in the workplace. I've been a pastor and a Bible teacher and an optician. Prior to that, I've waited tables for many years and done who knows how many odd jobs. I've never worked in the corporate world, so I won't pretend to know the norms inside corporate America or inside your place of work. But I do know that your workplace has a culture. And I'm sure that many elements of that culture are good, but I'm also virtually certain that some of the cultural norms in your workplace are inconsistent with genuine Christian virtue. I work at a Christian school, and some of the norms in our building aren't the way they should be. And when you decide to work in a countercultural way, that decision is not likely to be celebrated. I'll give you a small example, one that always comes to mind from my days when I used to wait tables. At the end, and I don't know if it works this way anymore Uh, because I waited tables a long time ago. But we used to get a lot of cash, uh, tips in cash. Remember, cash, that used to be a thing, and people used to give it to you when you waited tables, okay? We used to get almost all of our, our tips in cash, and at the end of the night, you would have to claim your tips so that you could be appropriately taxed for your tips, okay? But nobody in the government had any way of knowing how much cash I had been given in that particular night. What they could do at best was get a record of my sales. And so what was the norm in all of the restaurants that I worked in was that you should never actually claim however much money you get in tips. Now, I hope this is, like, well beyond the statute of limitations before I say this publicly, okay? (laughs) This was dozens of years ago, okay? (laughs) Nobody, nobody claimed how much they actually received in tips. You took 15 or 18% of your sales from that day, and that's what you claimed in tips. Now, is that a major moral compromise? Nope, it sure isn't. But if you decide to claim all your tips, do you know what people at work are going to say to you? You're going to do what? The list goes on and on. If you abide in Christ, that will affect every aspect of your life, in your home, in your relationships, in your HOA, and at work. And so, if you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. And if you bear fruit, you will stand out. And the world will put pressure on you to turn aside. I have virtually no fear that I am going to be killed or beaten or removed from my home because of my faith in Christ. I thank God for that, and I pray for my brothers and sisters who do face those realities. But nonetheless, we face daily pressure to turn aside, and the power of this species of persecution is, I think, its subtlety. In terms of brute force, the Merlin species of persecution registers at about a one out of ten on the historical and global scale, and maybe even that is too high. But in terms of effectiveness, achieving the goal of turning Christians aside this sort of persecution seems to be alarmingly effective. In the midst of the Merlin species of persecution, we face pressure to make thousands of seemingly innocuous compromises. But the sum total of these small compromises affect and constitute conformity to a system of values and norms that are antithetical to the life Jesus died for us to live. There is no single atom of carbon that makes an elephant too heavy to lift. But their cumulative effect is backbreaking. So, how should we handle this persecution? The good news is this God has not left us to endure persecution with our own strength. The cause of our persecution is the help for our persecution. The cause of our persecution is the help for our persecution. Look back at verse 19. I'm going to read 19 all the way through verse 25. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The reason why we are persecuted is because God has called us out of the world. And when God calls us out of the world, he changes who we are and how we live. This is John fifteen four and 5. As people called out of the world and transformed, we reveal sin to the world in what we say and what we do. Now, of course, in verses 22 through 24, Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying that it was his words and his actions that have made sin known to the world. And people don't like that. But this whole passage is about the ways in which we are or should be similar to Jesus. Jesus was persecuted because his words and actions made the sinfulness of the world evident. If we abide in Christ, then our words and actions will make the sinfulness of the world evident. And I'll give you another example of what I mean by this. I took a psychology class, an intro to psychology class when I was maybe a sophomore or junior in college. And the professor for this class was a very, very sweet man who had a wild curve. He told us, it was a small class, 12, 15 students, he told us that whatever the top three or four scores were, that would set the bar for what an A was. And without speaking to each other. Do you know what that meant that all of us in the class did? None of us studied for anything. And without fail, he would, we'd take a quiz or an exam and he would write the grading curve up on the, up on the board and he would do it sort of with a smile and a laugh and say, okay, on this exam, if you got a 57 or above, uh, you know, 57, that's an A and so on and so forth. And throughout the semester, none of us without speaking to each other, we figured this out like that. Okay. What if one student, just one student, had decided to do things differently, to do what we all should have done, to study, to try. Their good work would have exposed the rest of our bad work, and that student would not have been very popular. If you do your work honestly and treat your customers the way they want to be treated, If you love your wife the way that Christ loves the church and you prioritize your family, if your media habits are guided by Paul's words that all things are permissible but not all things are beneficial, if your commitment to your church community takes significant priority in terms of how you spend your nights and weekends, then you are going to do things and make decisions that are going to make people around you say, you're going to do what? And those decisions are going to make some people look bad and feel bad, and people tend to not take kindly to that. But the very reason why we are persecuted is also the reason why we can endure. God has called us out of the world. He has given us new life, At the end of this passage, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. What great language. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning." Here Jesus talks about the parallel between the Spirit bearing witness and Jesus' disciples bearing witness. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. He has made it possible that we might abide in Him. And if we abide in Him, He has promised that we will bear fruit. And so God does not tell us to live in a way And to live in a certain way and provide us no means to live in that way, it's quite the opposite. The reason why he tells us to live in a new way is because he has made provision. He's provided all that is necessary for us to live in that new way. John 15, 18 through 27 really only makes sense in my mind if it comes after John 1 through 17. And so finally, when we abide and endure, we bear witness. When we abide and endure, we bear witness. Persecution is pressure to turn aside. When we remain connected to Jesus and endure and even thrive by the power of the Holy Spirit, we demonstrate and proclaim the good news of the transformative power of God to a lost world. Enduring persecution is ultimately about the ministry of the gospel. How are we going to respond to this persecution and this hatred in the world? We could very easily think of ourselves as victims and take a combative disposition, but we have to look to Jesus as a model for our response to this sort of persecution. Think about Jesus at the height, at the very height of His persecution. Jesus looked at those who reviled him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In a remarkable way, Jesus took pity on his persecutors. The author of Hebrews says that because Jesus is human, he is sympathetic with our weakness. There is a difference between an expectation and an excuse. I expect my daughters to act like five-year-olds, and I expect my high school students to act like high school students. That does not excuse their behavior when my daughters act like they're five and my high school students act like high schoolers, but I can be sympathetic to them because I was once a five-year-old, and I once acted like a five-year-old when I was in high school. The point of Jesus' words here is to prepare us, is not, is not to prepare us for battle with the world. That is not Jesus' point. Jesus' point here is to prepare us for a gospel ministry of endurance for the world. Not preparing us for battle with the world, but preparing us for a gospel ministry of endurance for the world. Jesus was for the world, even when the world was against him, even when we were against him. And we have been called to a gospel witness ministry for the world, even when they are against us. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, I am so thankful that um, you have not um, sent your Son into the world to die just to forgive us for our sin, but you've also made provision for us to live a new life, the life that we lost because of our sin, you give back to us in the gospel. And Lord, when we abide in Christ, we live that new life. We are transformed by your power and by your Spirit to live the sort of lives you always intended for us to live. When we live that way, Lord, there is pressure in this world to turn aside. Father, help us to be like Jesus, people who endure by the power of the Spirit for the sake of the gospel to demonstrate your power to those who are lost. We love you, Lord pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.